Listener Production. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Briefing. I'm Sasha Barbagat. If you've been online at all in the last decade, you would have seen the phrase, do your own research, in likely hundreds of comments sections. It turns out doing your own research is precisely what can lead you to believing something untrue. For example, QAnon, which is a popular conspiracy group in the United States, one of their mottos is do the research. They actually direct people to go out and use Google because they know that if people search the terms that they're giving people, they're going to come into contact with more of these news stories that are misinformation and are going to misinform people. On today's briefing, we're finding out why a quick Google search isn't necessarily the best thing if you want the truth. First, though, let's get into today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It is Wednesday, the 24th of January. Thanks, Sasha. G'day, everyone. He's the Prime Minister that described himself as a bulldozer. He once crash-tackled a seven-year-old and now has just announced he's leaving politics. You got it? I'm talking about Scott Morrison. But at some point, you need to make some decisions about what you're going to do longer term. And I've sort of come to that view over the last, you know, several months, the last six months or so. And uh, and some great opportunities have have come forward after at the end of Parliament uh, last year. The former Prime Minister decided after 16 years as the member for Cork, he wants to focus on his family and their dreams. There are rumours he'll take up a post with a US company, but will reportedly continue to live in Sydney. So Morrison's career in politics spanned a number of portfolios, and that's not including the ones he swore himself into as PM. But before that, he was Minister for Immigration when he implemented Operation Sovereign Borders. Um, And that was, if you remember, the tagline to stop the boats. He served as Social Services Minister and Treasurer before becoming PM in a 2018 leadership spill against Malcolm Turnbull. Now, Sasha, Morrison is being remembered for a lot of things. I could use plenty of adjectives to describe how I view him, but let's instead hear from our listeners. Yeah, so we put out a question on our new broadcast channel behind the briefing on Instagram, asking our listeners what moments stood out most to them. And here's the ones uh, that came through. Overwhelmingly, it was his response to the bushfires in 2019-2020. Gary Dixon said, holiday in Hawaii while his country was on fire. And listener Rennell said, quote, I don't hold a hose, mate. They know that, uh, you know, I I don't hold a hose, mate, and I I don't sit in the control room. And then, of course, there was his response where he tried to do this comeback tour, came home early from Hawaii, went down to these devastated communities and started forcing handshakes on people. I'm only shaking your hand if you give more funding to our RFS. There was, of course, plenty of references to Jenny and how he tried to relate to women and show that he cared about women, referring to his wife and his children whenever he could. You have to think about this as a father first. What would you want to happen if it were our girls? Jenny has a way of clarifying things, always has. Megan Armanasco says the many insensitive gaffes, fires, Grace Tame, Women's March, International Women's Day. Tori Asako says sexism, transphobia, minister of everything and the infamous Engadine Mackers. Mm. Uh, but perhaps one of the most memeable moments was his PR interview with 60 Minutes when he decided to get out the ukulele. In fact, uh, one listener wrote, 
His, the thing that stands out most for him with Scott Morrison is what he did to that poor ukulele. Take me to the April sun in Cuba. Oh. <laughs> Take me to the April sun in Cuba. I can't remember the words. And a couple of other kind words for his farewell card. Hannah says, his incompetence. And another comment that came through was being a morally corrupt misogynist. Bye, ScoMo. And sticking with politics, Anthony Albanese has sworn his ministers to secrecy on rumoured changes to Stage 3 tax cuts ahead of today's caucus meeting. So you're probably hearing a lot about these tax cuts, and if you're not entirely sure what they are about, they were brought in to reduce bracket creep, where rising income leads to people paying higher average income tax rates. But the important thing to remember is why stages one and two benefited low and middle income households, those on higher incomes stand to gain the most from stage three tax cuts. And it frustrates many people that those earning the most get the most tax benefits, of of course, given the cost of living crisis. Yeah. And after promising in the run up to the 2022 election and a number of times since both Anthony Albanese and his treasurer, Jim Chalmers, They've both promised not to alter the policy. The PM is now clearing the way for changes. Uh, I support tax cuts and everyone will be getting a a tax cut. That was uh, the PM on KISS FM. Albanese met with his full cabinet yesterday to discuss the cuts and will put the revised plan to Labor MPs today in Canberra for that caucus meeting. It is understood the plan will secure a bigger cut for middle-income earners while still giving one to people on incomes over $150,000 and delivering relief to those on $40,000. To me, it's the better policy. It makes more sense than what was planned. Voting is underway in the New Hampshire primaries where Republicans are being asked to make their pick for the presidential nominee. Donald Trump is the clear frontrunner over Nikki Haley, the only other candidate after Ron DeSantis dropped out of the race earlier in the week. Like we saw with the Iowa caucuses, a win in New Hampshire doesn't necessarily mean the victor becomes the nominee, but it is more representative of the national sentiment than Iowa was. And the nominee will formally be named in July at the Republican convention. But we could have a clear winner before that with the Nevada caucus on February 8, South Carolina on Feb 24, and then Super Tuesday in early March, where 14 states will pick their favourite to run for the White House. And Sasha, sweet orange Jesus, it seems that Trump may be president again. I saw something this week and it was talking about the markets in the US correctly predicting uh, the president for the last, I don't know, 40 plus years. Yeah, right. And it's in favour of Biden at the moment. The SP is in favour of Biden. So, you know, we, we might not, but we are definitely, I think it's almost impossible to say that anyone but Trump is going to be the Republican yes. nominee. Uh, so we are going to get months and months in the election campaign in the lead up to November of Trumpisms once again. And Margot Robbie, she's been snubbed in the Oscars nominations, which have dropped overnight. She hasn't been recognised for her lead role in Barbie, despite the flick earning eight nods for the awards on March 10, including one for Ryan Gosling for Best Supporting Actor in the film. The clear frontrunner is Oppenheimer, which earned a whopping 13 noms, including for Best Picture, Director and Leading Actor. Also in contention for the Best Picture gong, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Holdovers, Maestro and Poor Things. Sasha, I'm going to share an unpopular opinion that I might be criticised for because Barbie was meant to be, and in many ways, this iconic feminist film. 
But I think Ken gave the best performance, Ryan Gosling. I think his character was so anguished and torn. It was just such a good character. He had some of the best lines and his performance was phenomenal. And so I know a lot of people are frustrated going, why wasn't the writer and creator and Margot Robbie given a nod? In this case, I really think Ken was the standout. Fair enough. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. I just think that why couldn't everyone be nominated, you know? Why couldn't Mar- Sure, Ryan might have been the better one, but Margot, I think, should have gotten a nod as well, personally. Uh, thank you so much for joining me for the headlines today. Next up, we are diving deeper into why doing a Google search might not be the best thing if you want the truth. The internet has become a pretty wild place. Enter the comment section of a news.com.au article at your own risk, I say. While the World Wide Web has connected us more than ever before, what it also means is we have access to the thoughts, feelings and ideas of millions of strangers from all over the world. I saw it a lot during COVID, deniers and anti-vaxxers getting on their soapboxes, calling people sheep and telling them to, quote-unquote, do their own research. But according to new research, that could be the very thing leading you to false, doctored and outright insane, quote-unquote, information online. The University of Central Florida has carried out experiments with thousands of people on this and lead author of the study, Kevin Aslett, joins me now. Kevin, thanks for your time. I want to put an idea to you. Let's say I want to find out if Hillary and Bill Clinton used a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C. as a front for a pedophile sex ring. I just Google that, right? Definitely not. So recent research that we published in Nature shows that actually searching online to fact check misinformation is more likely to make people believe that misinformation. Tell us about this research. You've done it based on how doing your own research, which is often what people say to each other in comment sections saying, oh, well, you know, you don't know anything, go do your own research. Um, But doing that, you're more likely to believe untrue information. Can you explain to us how you came to that conclusion? Yeah. So when we ran a multitude of different studies, we kept finding the same consistent result that when people searched online about misinformation, they were more likely to believe it. And when we dug into the actual search end results that people came into contact with, that appeared that people who are, when they searched about misinformation, they came into contact with more unreliable information that corroborated the initial claim. And some people call them data voids. So they're essentially parts of the information ecosystem online that when you get into, there's only low quality information corroborating the claim. And this is because misinformation uses unique terms from credible news. So the example you gave earlier was the Clintons owning a pizza restaurant in D.C. that had this this uh, nefarious business going on in the basement. If I were to search about that, no credible news sources would be actually reporting on that. Only low-quality news is reporting on that story. And so I'd, I would basically fall into this data void, where, which would make me believe that that story was actually true. 
We mentioned this sort of story, which maybe initially didn't have many news organisations reporting on it. But what about a story that's been going on for ages? What about something like COVID? And let's say we're a year into the pandemic and people are, quote unquote, doing their own research online. How do the data voids work there? And is the same thing happening even with stories that lots of mainstream news organisations and commentators are reporting on? Yeah, so unfortunately, the same phenomenon occurs because people word their news stories in a way that is very different and unique from credible news sources. Like they will talk about how COVID is a hoax and, you know, world governments are behind it. And when you type those those terms into Google, no credible news is saying that COVID is a hoax and world governments are behind this COVID hoax, only low quality news sources that are also publishing this information are saying that same thing. So you really have to be careful about what you, what you type into Google, into the search terms. Like I'll give you one example. In our study, we found that when people were evaluating this misinformation that Joe Biden was engineering a famine in the United States, if they typed in engineered famine in Biden, they only were exposed to misinformation talking about this engineered famine that Biden was was leading. And so but people who used the term maybe famine in Biden wouldn't come into contact with that. So it's using these unique terms from misinformation that puts you into these data voids that makes you susceptible to misinformation. So are these data voids then driven by the language used? Is that the sole kind of uh, catalyst to create these vacuums where people are just seeing, you know, that we hear the word echo chamber a lot. Is it simply the language people are plugging into Google that is then causing this to happen? Yeah. And I think, you know, misinformation producers know this. And I think they manipulate the online information ecosystem for this purpose. So for example, QAnon, which is a popular conspiracy group in the United States, one of their mottos is do the research. They actually direct people to go out and use Google because they know that if people search the terms that they're giving people, they're going to come into contact with more of these news stories that are misinformation and are going to misinform people. So these misinformation publishers know that this process is occurring. Mm. Is this an online literacy issue? Are people who maybe don't have as much experience with using the internet. And I know that sounds like a strange thing to say in 2024, but, you know, people who use the internet for work every day have a little bit more literacy around what they're doing and what they're seeing. Is that the issue there? Or is it more likely that people who have a distrust of mainstream media who might engage with conspiracy theories, are they the ones most likely to fall into this trap? That's a great question. So we actually investigated this and we didn't find that digital literacy actually uh, increased the effect of searching online. So people with low levels of digital literacy and people with high levels of digital literacy were both equally susceptible to this phenomenon. I think it probably more goes to the fact of fact-checking these claims. One issue is that Fact-checking organizations are just under-resourced and overwhelmed by the volume of misinformation. So when you actually search about a single claim of misinformation, it's unlikely you're going to come into contact with fact-checks saying that that's false. You're much more likely to be exposed to low-quality content. And so it can be very difficult, even for those with high levels of digital literacy, to understand that. 
Okay, so we've established that, you know, doing your own research, quote unquote, can lead you down this trap into these data voids where you're consuming wrong information or or information that hasn't been fact-checked properly. What is the best way for us to ensure that the information that we are getting is accurate and is correct? Yeah, so one strategy that we found to be effective is to actually fact-check the sources of information rather than the individual claims. Because as I said earlier, claims are rarely fact-checked, but sources are fact-checked. So one strategy is called lateral reading, and where instead of fact-checking the individual claim, you fact-check the source of that information. And if you find information online that says that that source is biased or regularly publishes misinformation or low-quality news, then you should be skeptical of that information rather than fact-checking the claim or Worst case, typing that claim into Google and then falling into a data void. Mm. How would one go about fact-checking a source on their own? Again, you know, in our jobs, we use the internet a lot and we know how to fact-check things, but how would the everyday person kind of go about doing that? Yeah, so there's a lot of tools and resources out there that evaluate the sources of information. So there's a great web extension called NewsGuard where you can install it into your web browser and then it gives you actually, it embeds source labels into your Google search engine results or onto your Facebook or Twitter, maybe our X newsfeed. And so there's a way, there's tools out there that easily give you source credibility information of the of URL that you're viewing online. And that can help a lot. Yeah, okay. And Kevin, before we let you go, what does the future look like? I mean, this really has become such an issue, I think, in everyday discourse, in how we communicate with each other, in how we engage with information. And when I say we, I mean, as a global population, we're all on the internet, most of us are on the internet, you know, we can access this information 24-7 and it's hard to see where it's come from and how to verify it. What does the future look like? Are we going to see only more of this or are there efforts being made to kind of educate people and say, this is how you should be getting your information and this is how you should be checking your information? Well, unfortunately, I don't know if I have good news on that front, Um, (laughs) but it looks with with the rise of generative AI, the the cost to producing misinformation are only going to go down. So the ability for misinformation producers to quickly generate a bunch of stories about the same topic and flood an information ecosystem with false information is only going to become easier. So these data voids will probably only become more prevalent, unfortunately. But there are digital literacy efforts out there like the strategy I talked about, lateral reading. And now it's becoming more popular in school curriculums to teach digital media literacy, understanding that a lot of what you see online is false and how to correctly fact check sources and information. So hopefully, you know, the younger age population, which I think is increasingly using social media to fact check their their news, hopefully, you know, people are learning better strategies and not just Googling. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it could be uh, the young people who push through and kind of end or at least put a really big dent in these data voids. Kevin Aslett, thank you so much for joining us. It was really fascinating research you guys carried out. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me.
That was Kevin Aslett, leading author of a new study by the University of Central Florida. So I guess the message from Kevin is check your sources, not the content. That is all for today's podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Briefing, perhaps you've got an idea for an episode or you want to have your say, you can go to our Instagram page and send us a message. Simple as that, The Briefing on Instagram. And we also have our very own broadcast channel and you can click on that through the link in our bio. It's called Behind The Briefing. And make sure you check back in your feed the Sabo at 3 for our PM edition of The Briefing. I'm Sasha Barbagat. Thanks for listening. Listener.